Hi everyone, welcome to the 10th episode of Under Control. My name is Paul Bartlett and on today's show is Hussein Kassai, who is the CEO and co-founder of Onfido. We will discuss how digital identification helps companies such as Revolut and why it is a more secure alternative to physical identification. We also talk about how artificial intelligence is a game changer in their sector to prevent frauds and other criminal activities. Hi, Hussein. How are you Hello. doing? We've got Hussein from Onfido on the on the show today, so this is going to be an interesting one. We're going to cover the topic of AI and uh, personal identification, how that's moving from the uh, the physical world to the digital world. So I'm really happy to have you here on the show today, uh, Hussein. Welcome. So I want to get started with handing it over to you. Okay, and giving us some insight into your background and about how Onfido came around. Of course, it's good to be on. So I am one of the three co-founders and the CEO here at Onfido. We started eight years ago, back in 2012. Mm -hmm. And the main reason was that we could see that more businesses are moving online, and yet they didn't seem to have an effective way to verify that the people that are onboarding as customers are who they came to be. So our, our approach is that we help 1,500 businesses integrates our software development kits into their applications. It could be online browsers or smartphone applications, whereby if a user is registering onto an online remittance platform, for example, they're asked to take a photo of their government ID, such as a driving license, and a short selfie video. And then behind the scenes, we're taking that photographic ID and we're verifying if it's genuine or fake using machine learning, which we'll, we'll come on to. And then we're comparing the person's face to the mm -hmm. photo on the ID to make sure that the owner of that identity so that they can be onboarded. And that's in, a, in essence, it's building that layer of trust for this new digital economy. Okay. And so where did it kind of, you know, start off for you then? So you said eight years ago that you, you started out and you saw the potential or you just happened to be in a place where this discussion was taking place with a potential customer and it grew from there. Was it really your own? It's a number of things. So for me right. personally, when I turned 10, my parents moved from Iran to the UK mm -hmm. and I remember it taking them quite a few months to be able to open a bank account and rent in their own name just because they weren't registered on a credit bureau. So uh, growing up, I re recognized the importance of, of identity verification and authentication and that ba basically being able to prove your identity digitally underpins the whole digital economy. And so we, myself and my two co-founders, when we started to research this space, we saw that the identity infrastructure is, is broken and getting worse. The three main issues are, on the one hand, any face-to-face -face interaction, which is what we still mostly used to inside a bank branch when you're registering for the first time for a bank account, for example, that's not convenient and, it, and it's time-consuming. It's not accessible to many people either if, if they don't have a local bank branch, as sort of this is a very a global issue, a global problem. The second is this fact that half the world's population are not registered in the credit bureau. So the credit bureau infrastructure is not fit for purpose for them. And the third one is around fraud and security. Given the data breaches, our details such as date of birth, name and address and so on are online uh, and the dark web. So if, that, if those are the data points that are required to prove you are who you claim to be online, then it's, there's, there's not much security because fraud is conceded. And our approach of a government ID and a facial biometric is, is geared towards making it convenient giving access to anyone with a camera-enabled device and making it secure at the same time. Mm -hmm. Good. And you mentioned you've got customers, uh, many customers all around the globe, and um, I'd imagine that a lot of them are financial institutions. So 
I would imagine as well that the how did you get to talk to these customers and build the trust with them? Because certainly the banking industry back in those days was very traditional. Look, if you want to start opening a bank account, if you need to verify yourself, you got to go into the branch, you got to make an appointment. So how did you start building that trust with those with those banks or those institutions where you think that this product could be suitable? So we actually started in a different industry. Eight years ago, we started in the online marketplaces or trust marketplaces. That's when you want to share a home or a car or have a nanny or cleaner or tutor come to, to your house. And there's no face-to-face interaction there. So as you can imagine, there's this need for verification to, to happen and to happen well. Then we started in the fintech wave where you had online neobanks and payments, remittance, lending, and so on. And it's only in the last four years that we've been able to make progress with the mainstream banks. It's essentially as they have started to truly go digital. And in the UK, we service four of the five mainstream banks. And the trust that came resulted as them looking at the neobanks and learning how the neobanks innovate. And as part of that journey, they've, they've discovered that under the bonnet is, is companies like us that are powering this move to the digital economy. And by extension, they started to come to us directly. Mm-hmm. And I mean, was it just a, a transition with technology or when you think about like the physical identification process, um, moving to digital, where did you see the necessary step in, in that? Is it because of efficiencies, the, making the customer experience or customer-centric uh, journey for these banks a lot better or these institutions, where whichever customer it may be, where did you see the, uh, the shift? So we had our starting place was four building blocks that we wanted to focus on. And the first is to help 98% of people access services digitally, should they want to. Second is to stop the 2% of bad actors, fraudsters. And the more effective that you become at stopping fraudsters, the more easily you're able to enable the other 98% to access services. Third is to make this as seamless and as frictionless and as user-friendly as possible, the whole journey. So, So it's much more akin to the 21st century, essentially all online, all digital, a few clicks, and then you're, you're, kind of, you're able to sign up to a bank account, for instance. And the fourth is still called privacy, so that we're achieving the first three, but without having to uh, store personal information or, or use personal information. Now, your question around what were the trends and the factors that made it obvious that there's a need for this, there is a supply side and demand side, but be, even before that, fundamentally, taking technology, fintech, everything out of the equation, it's when, as humans, whenever we're offered something that is uh, more straightforward and, and, and essentially a simplified version, we're always going to take that over something more cumbersome. So mm-hmm. I'm going to sign up online if I can, as opposed to go inside a bank branch, for instance, more, more likely than not. Second is offering greater security is always better than less security and, and so on and so forth. So the supply side technological building blocks that have now enabled these to be achieved, uh, the, the key ones are the smartphone, fundamentally, uh, camera quality on them and so on. The internet connectivity, improvements in biometrics, servers going online, becoming more accessible. And all these are supply side. On the demand side, there, there are a few factors. But as consumers, as, as we've increasingly been exposed to nicer interfaces like a Facebook or before that MySpace and smartphones, being able to do everything on your smartphone, the extension is, well, why can't I open a bank account or make a payment or even rent a car and, and book a travel and service and so on? So the demand side is, is driven by what has been made possible by other service providers. Right. And we just became relevant to that ecosystem. And you have to remember that a lot of the smartphone generation now, you know, let's say your, your average 25-year-old, 
from the age of 10, they've been exposed to smartphones or some <laughs> sort of from their early teens, essentially. So when they turn 18 and 20 and they want to open an actual bank account, to them, going inside a bank branch, that is alien to them. Being, having the ability to open accounts and access digital services on your smartphone, that is what is perfectly normal to them. And what, what happened with the mainstream banks is they started to see a big divergence between uh, traditional customers that prefer face-to-face, prefer in-branch experiences and so on, and this new wave of smartphone generation uh, users who had a completely different behavior and therefore had yeah. a different demand. And that's when the mainstream banks started to offer digital propositions, and that's where we are uh, most relevant. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned the demographics there, and I'm also thinking about the the geography part of it as well, because I would assume that, or one would assume that, you know, Europe's the ones that would, would Europeans and US would be the, the the population that adopts that the most. But I've also been seeing trends down in continents like Africa, which really are leapfrogging ahead. Um, because, of course, there's so much distance between cities and villages and things like that, but technology is there to be able to do that. Do you, do you see that similar trend as well amongst your customer base that there's certain parts of geographical regions which are adopting the technology a lot quicker? And is it in the yeah. developing countries over the developed countries? What do you see happening? Uh, it, it's, so in Southeast Asia, where, where we're very active, uh, there are definitely examples of that. There's a factor around the personal journey of digitizing for many people. So I went through it and I'm guessing you did. And in a few cases, so maybe it was 15 years ago when we went into a supermarket <laughs> for the first time and they had self-checkout tills. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was odd for us, uh, for me anyway, you know, yeah. how does it work? It's a bit frustrating, you know, it keeps buzzing, the red light keeps going off and someone has to come and put in their barcode and, and, and unlock it for you and so on. But now, um, most people kind of prefer that. It's, it's more predictable. It's faster. There's usually fewer people queuing and so on. So, so th- that journey uh, takes time. Now, what, what has happened with COVID is that it, it's accelerated that journey. So we all have yeah. relatives and friends, you know, and aunts that just keeps asking you to Skype or Zoom with you. Uh, whereas previously they would have only called you on a speaker, experience this digital uh, approach and they really like it and they want more of it. So it, when you're talking about uh, emerging countries, often mm. they don't have an alternative approach. They don't have a local bank branch or anything similar. And so they have to uh, resort to the digital options. And that's when adoption is strong because it's pretty scalable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just going back to that point, as you mentioned, going through and, and it was quite alien to see a self-checkout service um, and to think, of course, we'll come on to the future part in a minute, but I can certainly relate to that when, for example, being in Tesco's and just pushing the trolley up and queuing up and then seeing these these self-service deals of, of going through. And yeah, you see those things just evolve, whereas um, a generation before us or the current generation, they just see, they grow up with it and see it as the norm. So we were talking about your customers and we talked about the geographic. I mean, who is now, would you say, the the main customer base that you have? I mean, is it, we saw a lot of digital banks coming up in recent years. They're everywhere. You've got your Revoluts and, and your TransferWise and kind of your, your disruptors, right? So they're, they're disrupting the banking industry. And now these, these traditional banks are tr- trying to keep up and, and catch up with uh, changing their business models. But um, is it just the banking sector? You mentioned earlier you started out with somewhere else. What do you see uh, where your technology is being deployed and where it's being effective? So our category is digital access. And three quarters of the customer base are, are financially regulated in one way or another. Um, so, and a quarter are is a very long tail. So, of the financial ones, is, is some of the ones that well, all of the customers or brands that you mentioned. But on the 
uh, longer tail. So wide ranging is the Swiss Federal Railways, Vienna Insurance Group, Orange, uh, Zipcar, and so on. Uh, it includes digital access in an offline world setting. So with Clear in the US, uh, yeah. you are checking into an airport for domestic flights. So you go from curb to gate, and typically you're checked about five times, you know, when you drop off your bag, when you go through security, when you go to the, the Delta lounge, for instance, and then you're on your gate and then you board. You don't need any form of identification. You just take your um, Clear app and you seamlessly sort of walk through. Equally check into hotels is the same and so on. So these are, this is just a bit of a flavor of the different use cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the uh, the aviation business. Um, it's obviously tough tough times right now, but I was also inv- involved in the aviation business and remember having to go through and, and show your passport and at different places, uh, check-in and then security, or potentially security or passport control, and then, of course, before you get on the aircraft. So are you saying that all of these stages, all of the different organizations that you interact with at the airport are moving towards digitization where your technology is being applied? Um, so there are early adopters of it, yeah. specifically that is public so far, is, is, is in fact the largest one, and it's called Clear in the US. Uh, and that's for domestic flights in the US. I believe there are 4 million customers. That means that any one of those 4 million individuals, if they want to fly domestically in the US, they can go through the fast path, uh, the fast queue, which is uh, the Clear queue. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, what about other use cases that you have out there? I mean, that's just one uh, interesting use case. What about the more unusual ones that you've uh, you found? Is there any? So one, one of the more recent ones is around connecting your test results. Say you want to go from Australia to New Zealand and in the morning of your flight, you test, you carry out a test and the test says you don't happen to have the virus today you are able to attach that test result to an app and this app, are, the apps we don't build, our partners do. And then we're connecting the app to your offline identity. So we take your offline identity and we anchor that into this digital app, uh, this account using a government ID and face so that you can't then give your phone to a sibling right. or a flatmate to someone else. And that is a use case whereby in the morning you go and get the test, you anchor it to the app, you anchor your physical identity to the app, then you go to the airport, you show that, you're then able to fly. And then when you land on the other side, you're able to equally prove that you've already been tested that day. And therefore uh, you can go down the, the fast path and, and go home, for instance. Uh, so COVID-19 is, is a new use case. Just generally, there are, there's a more of a consideration around us, us physically touching places. So if you want to access a building, if you have to put in a pin into the entrance security gateway before you enter, well, if everyone going in the building is touching that pad, that has a hygiene and a virus con- contagion uh, issue. So now is a question of, can I just scan a barcode on my phone and be able to grant, be granted access uh, automatically? And if I do that, how again do you anchor the person's offline identity, physical identity to that app that carries that barcode? So it's physical access to buildings is another new one. Uh, there are moving to a cashless society. Uh, part of it is that as well. The big one in the US, as you can imagine, we're, we're not. So I think we're five or so weeks away from, from the elections. Yeah. And it, so there are conversations around voting and how in the future, the hope is that we'd be able to vote online. It's already happening in a few yeah. countries. I with companies like Agora and others that help you 
for, for countries that permit it uh, to digitally vote online. That is one that uh, is just more topical now. It's, that is not obviously live in the US yet, uh, nor, nor are there any plans for it to be. It's just purely at discussion stage. But there's some, we're touching on some of these uh, use cases that I'm hopeful will come in the, in the coming years. Wow, that's pretty impressive. It's amazing that you've got potentially something for COVID. And uh, so are you actively working with an airline to uh, so do this or the airport authority? It's not, uh, there are no airport, uh, so right. the specific is um, Delphine Health is one. I mentioned Clear, Clear now yep. have Clear uh, Health, which is for you to enter stadiums for sporting events. So uh, a few weeks ago over the weekend, there was a hockey league in the US and sort of 3,000 or so hockey players went into the, to the stadium along with friends, family and journalists and all of them were checked through Clear. There's Side Hide, which is used live today for um, guests to uh, Nobu hotels in Miami, Florida. So th- these are like more pockets of examples mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, there are no airlines using it at, at the right. moment. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just curious for myself because uh, coming from having a history in the airline business myself uh, and my heart is bleeding at the moment seeing what's happening out there and I'm hoping of course that there was going to be some kind of solution what you're presenting here about how you can potentially travel because obviously the fact that we might end up with a vaccine uh, it still could be some time and it, clearly that presents us uh, a solution there. So one of the things that I wanted to touch on about collecting this is like around the security aspect. I mean, obviously you must be using certain security technologies to make sure that that's keeping that information safe, right? Then that you keep it uh, locked down. So maybe so, so you use encryption or what other methods that you use to do the personal identifiable information for that person? Sure. So, so as a as with most other tech companies, that once you register or start offering your services to a mainstream bank, then you typically say bank grade security because it's the industry that mainstream banks in particular are, are strict, rightfully so, around all the services that they use. And as you can imagine, the first bank that we signed up a few years ago, it was actually a six-month process just to go through all the compliance requirements and make sure it's, it's completely watertight. So that, that's on the general security. And then you, you, your question in part relates to how secure are we at, at saying if the person is who they claim to be, i.e., the extent to which their identity on, and their face uh, that they're using, is it fake or is it an impersonator yeah. or actually genuine? So when it comes to that... We explain to clients that we're a little bit like an antivirus software that we do not uh, or are not able to, and no one is uh, able to commit to catching 100% of the fraudsters, just like the way you'd catch, no antivirus software could say that they catch 100% of the viruses. But the way that we've developed the technology, A, we, we can confidently uh, show that we're better than any alternative and certainly much more than the human eye. Uh, and secondly, that is continuously evolving and improving. So as we sit in the middle of all the different businesses, when uh, fraudsters attempt to cheat the system with fake IDs, um, as the system learns, all the other clients benefit from those attack vectors as well. Right. And that is the benefit of as you sort of evolve and you're starting to focus more on the more, most sophisticated fraudsters. And we produce an annual fraud report that shows has interesting insights. One of those is that over the weekend, the fraud rates seem to drop. Uh, and that's not necessarily because the volumes go down over the weekend or anything else. It's actually the contrary. But what, what that the reason for that is because sophisticated fraudsters are doing this as part of their job. It's a career. So yeah. they also take weekends off. They also have sick pay. They have holiday pay and everything else. So it just goes to show uh, as an interesting example of 
forces becoming more sophisticated and therefore um, stronger machine learning power technology being relevant and needed to counter mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and, and that's a, I wanted to come to that point around the security aspect as well because of what you're doing is like the obviously the ability to be vulnerable to attacks and, and having that level of security in place. I mean, of course, here what we do is we do full end-to-end encryption um, and we also have a zero-knowledge policy, but that doesn't stop still those people out there wanted to test and try and test to see if they can uh, gain access to the system. So is that something you see as the biggest challenge for you or are there other big challenges out there trying to deploy this technology and keep this technology managed in an effective way? As an industry, it's fair to say that, well, across giving access to more people while stopping fraudsters is the key constraint and is, is the key challenge. So uh, yeah, that, that would be very much the case. So obviously as a company, we've got a number of different priorities. This is one where it's kind of the way it's structured is continuously improving and the gap of the performance uh, vis-a-vis alternatives is sort of growing in terms of it being demonstrably better. So it's not top of mind in, in part because it's organically improving, but um, there are definitely other areas that you know continuously need to be worked on. Mm-hmm. And we were talking just earlier at the beginning about uh, the, a topic which is artificial intelligence. Are you deploying and using artificial intelligence in combating that that security threat, or um, with the identification as well? Is it is it something that's benefiting uh, your organization in deploying AI? Uh, very much so. So artificial intelligence in some ways could be thought of as generalizable uh, model that is trying to replicate the, the, the functionings of the, the human mind, just the way you could think of the industrial revolution and the steam engine and so on. It's trying to replicate the, the physical arm. Uh, artificial intelligence is trying to replicate perhaps the way the cognitive mind and, and machine learning is more narrow artificial intelligence or specifically like a direct application of artificial intelligence to a re- repeatable task for us is image recognition, for example. You know, is this a driving license or is it a passport, for instance? So we deploy artificial intelligence, specifically machine learning uh, or narrow artificial intelligence quite a lot. And it's a range, uh, it's embedded in our core products of government ID and facial biometrics in a number of different ways. There's a different model to classify the ID, different model to extract the characters, and a range of different models to detect different fraudulent patterns and match that to the person's face and so on. Uh, And that has been why we've been fortunate and that we've been able to be uh, effective. Mm -hmm. And how long does it take to to get AI to work in an effective way and to deploy it. It's an exciting area, an exciting field about what capabilities it's got there. So it depends the extent to which what your model is. But if it's a straightforward AI model to classify whether an, an ID document coming in is a passport or a driving license, um, you know, in theory, it could be a few days. The more important thing is you have to feed it millions of IDs uh, not not this simple problem, but more sophisticated problems, millions of different ideas to detect patterns and fakes and sort of improving. And naturally, AI is, or, or narrow AI machine learning is not applicable for every problem. So there are some areas where uh, you, you're able to be more effective without using AI than, than you are. One other thing to mention is that AI in intrinsically or, or machine learning specifically is, is more around spotting patterns and repeatability. The challenge with fraudsters is they're by definition the anomaly. So that has to be thought through well and you have to configure it in different ways to optimize for helping people the 98% gain access while blocking the 2%. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, just something that sprung to mind because we were talking about the aviation sector earlier on and, and artificial intelligence and just to help me get my head around this as well is that when you go through those airport scanners, so you go up and you put your passport in, is there a suggestion that that is something that potentially could be obsolete in a few years' time? Because what you're bringing in along with artificial intelligence, you would not not need to, to scan your passport or um, you'll be able to pick up a facial recognition uh, and compare it to something digitally on your phone rather than a physical in passport? In all likelihood, it's going to be a lot more like the, the introduction of the credit cards, where the majority will use this uh, more of a credit card digital based way of making a payment. And yet for those who are more comfortable, can, they can continue to use a cash uh, approach. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's hard to see a purely digital approach without there being uh, a cash alternative running in parallel uh, or an analog approach in parallel. But if, if the time frame is more 30 to 100 years from now, then yeah. there is a world where it could be done fully digitally if done properly. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the uh, like here in 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 Hungary in Budapest, we've got these uh, number plate recognitions, and you just drive from one area to the other, and it just scans it automatically, and so you don't have to buy tickets anymore for motorways, and of course, speeding fines as well is not done by individual cameras; it's done over the average. So, like all of these things that I'm thinking out there out loud is involving artificial intelligence, is it learning all the time? But correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, yeah, now it just seems to be that something that's being deployed in facial recognition and uh, identification, digital identification. It is. There's a clear application for what we do because uh, there's a lot of pattern recognition involved. With the example of what you just shared, we have that use case as well. In Italy, uh, the company is called Telepass that helps you drive through the tolls and you can automatically register and make the payments automatically, but then you register your identity first and your car and then you register a credit card and then you can go through uh, automatically. One other point around artificial intelligence is that there needs to be a better global regulatory framework around it. And that as with all technologies, and this has been around for, for decades, but it's now more applicable and accessible because of computing power and other factors that, that come into the equation. But uh, there, there are downsides, right? Autonomous robotic warfare is leveraging AI as well for instance. And so yeah. there is a bit of a lag uh, with the regulators catching up and making sure it's done appropriately, both from a data privacy side and ethics side and so on and so forth. So that is an area that we are involved with and we're looking forward to being even more involved with. Mm-hmm. Ah, good, good. Um, I just wanted to come on to when you think about AI. I mean, AI and automation for in layman terms for the person out there that's listening, who's the business business listener, for example, sometimes they can't distinguish between the two, but I know that you kind of are doing both. You're working with AI, but you're also looking for more automation. I think globally, this is a global trend that automation is coming in. We get asked also a lot about automation capabilities as well. Is that something as well that you can separately distinguish and and facilitate with your technology? So uh, yes, the the way I would think about it or the the way that um, I think might help is automation has is, is kind of been around um, for a very long time. Uh, it's specifically the first industrial revolution, which is around the steam engine and, and machines that automated the factory line. And so essentially basic robots doing basic functions 
like the conveyor belt is just a basic function of, of things moving along automatically, right? In a conveyor belt as opposed to having to be it, it being pushed or, or dragged along. Um, that automated and made redundant the human labor needed as far as your physical strength goes, like the human arm was, re- was replaced uh, in large part by automation in that uh, era. The one now, and naturally computing power came later, the internet came later, and they all made their contributions. The current one, AI, is somewhat different in that it's part of the same evolution, but this stage, it's more the cognitive functions of the human mind, the components that can be, again, spotting a pattern of whether this is a passport or a driving license, the human eye can do it. It's just AI can, or narrow AI can do it much better. And that means that some services, human labor that are specifically geared towards the cognitive mind uh, and using your, your, your brain essentially uh, is increasingly becoming less relevant if AI can do it. Like the call center is a frequently sort of quoted example. And so for small businesses or any, there are two sides to this. One is if you're in an industry that can be impacted by AI, then you should think of additional skills or alternatives or, or how you could leverage it to to basically uh, offer a better service and for uh, equally another consideration is you can now leverage other tools that are pretty powerful because they are using ai to offer a better customer service to what you're doing so even if you're not involved in ai in any way as a business nor is it relevant to what you're doing in any shape or form um, let's just say your your dental practice that doesn't stop you from being able to leverage other softwares and other tools to help you with your bookkeeping, with your financial investments and, and everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've got uh, now a lot of inquiries about how they can, people can collect uh, identifiable information. So personal identifiable information, how it can be sent into especially healthcare um, because of course they're not going into the clinics anymore. Um, so they're looking for tools which can remotely collect this information in a very secure way. Um, and I think this is something that we're seeing as well is that um, because of COVID, potentially things could change forever than the way that people do things. Um, so not to revert back to going in and, as you said earlier on, it's like having to meet a cashier or or show some form of ID is that this will all be done um, either through collecting photocopies or even more so is it one step ahead where you're doing it digitally uh, with what you guys are doing. Um, okay, so... What we're going to move on to now, I think we've got 10 minutes or so left, but I'd like to challenge you or get your feelings about the future um, of your in particular industry, but I think also about the direction in which artificial intelligence is going as well, because it's a fascinating topic and you mentioned narrow AI. Um, and does that mean that there's going to be a broader AI out there in in the future? I mean, is society going to be, should society be worried about AI or should it be potentially embracing it in certain areas? Because you touched on something a little bit earlier around the ethics committee and how much that you want to do uh, going forward to bring in some kind of regulation and standard. Sure. So, you know, first question is, is there like a generalized AI, generalizable AI model. There are companies working on it. It's basically what they're looking to achieve is is essentially as close as you can get to a directly uh, replicable human mind and mm-hmm. all of its functions. But it's, it is 
quite a bit of way away whether it's achievable or not is more currently like a theoretic exercise academic discussion as for the specific benefits to society it's unquestionable you know if you have a scan of your chest and you have a cough and you are concerned is this cancer is this uh, just a, a benign disease well because of ai the patterns of your lung and the, the way that it's sort of shaped and the colors can be logged and the actual condition that you have in a few years also logged and over time as that is added to by millions of other samples then you can develop AI models or, or machine learning models to predict what condition you may have over and above your standards, uh, data science, uh, algorithms, and so on. So you can imagine that there are very many benefits. I just used the health example one. But uh, in parallel, I just mentioned that briefly touched on this is as with any technology, like nuclear technology can give you nuclear power, it can give you nuclear weapons. And not to a dissimilar way, you can have autonomous drones and sort of warfare purely by machines and without human involvement. And that, that creates significant risks. So as with any new technology, the way to make sure you're maximizing uh, the benefits and minimizing the costs is to have regulation, both in the sense of how and when should it be applied and what should be the boundaries and guidelines. So is it okay in places like China where you have machine learning or AI powered facial recognition tools to essentially survey the people, have a mass surveillance program and identify a political descendants or whenever there's someone or a group that are showing political dissent or you're targeting specific individuals and then locking them up for political reasons, you know, that, that surely is not okay. Whereas there are many examples like that. So first is to have rules and regulations around limiting the access, but second to consider the societal implications. If it means there are going to be an increasing number of people who won't have a job because machine learning and AI have come and sort of outcompeted uh, or, or been able to offer a better service, then what alternatives are there for them? Is it a basic income uh, approach? Is it retraining? Is it what is it going to be? So there's going to be a need for these questions and needs to be thought through properly and effectively and for there not to be a laissez-faire kind of or let the market run as it wishes type of approach. Mm -hmm. What do you see going forward for your organization around the deployment of AI? Is this something that you're going to enhance, become more dependent on um, when it comes to digital identification? Do you see there's the possibility to evolve uh, even further? Because obviously technology is always evolving. What does the future hold for you guys? So the, what the future holds both for us and then the industry, if the question is as a result of AI, then the answer is um, the reason why there's so much interest in AI is that it can help a company gain a competitive advantage and grow that competitive advantage disproportionately over time. So for an example, we have the market leading approach of verifying if government IDs and facial biometrics are genuine or not because of our machine learning models. That means we're signing up more businesses. That means we're getting more data and that means our models get even better, which makes us even more attractive to future customers. And that gap between us and others is, is growing. So in a, in a similar way, the big tech giants, Google, uh, yeah. Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, and others, they're doing the same. And they, whatever they apply sort of artificial intelligence uh, or machine learning to, because of their privileged position and getting, getting access to more data, they're able to offer something that no one else can come close to competing with. And that creates significant inequality in the marketplace. Uh, monopoly power and everything else that comes with it. 
So from a company perspective, like I'm not going to complain about the fact that we're sort of a market leader and we've been able to become a market leader because of leveraging technology and machine learning. Going back eight years, we were the smallest company and now we're sort of the biggest. But in parallel, uh, from an industry perspective, there is a uh, issue of all the bad things that come when you have any concentration of power. AI just accelerates that manifold, this ability to be significant concentration of power. And again, the the solution seems to be a lot of smart and thought through regulation so that society benefits from these technological advances and yet doesn't have to suffer the costs uh, of them not being regulated properly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking when you mentioned uh, some of the countries around the world that are deploying uh, AI and identification. I just remember reading a story about China about uh, grading citizens about the way that they behave and things like that with like all these video cameras all over the place. I don't recall exactly what that that article was and where I found it, but I just remember thinking about something along the lines of, you know, a police state or some kind of rewarding state for being a good citizen, which is probably in my imagination a push too far. But do you think, I mean, as well as it can be used for the good, I mean, it can be used for the for the negative as well. So what's the dangers of, of, of AI in the future then? I mean, could it suppress freedom of speech, for example, or could it encourage freedom of speech for, for this? We see things in, in the elections going on over the last couple of years. Is AI to blame for that or is it a part of that? So AI can help uh, accelerate some of the most dangerous parts. So if, if you want to figure out in a large population what reaction people have to different adverts, uh, sort of ads, and based on their preferences and likes and dislikes, then you sh- running machine learning models uh, just helps it accelerate and then you, you gain much more predict- powerful predictive algorithms, essentially. That means you can be more potent as you are looking to sort of manipulate the way people think. So, so yeah, in practical terms, yes. I don't see China as being too different than any other mm-hmm. country. Um, so I, I know that is a healthy skepticism of big tech uh, and big government, as there should be. The, China is able to just get away with it. I think most, wherever you have a concentration of power, and again, those who are in charge, you know, call it politically elected officials or otherwise, there is this natural tendency in humans to want to consolidate that power. And using AI, machine learning technology, and so on and so forth can be used for those ends very effectively. So the, the only real difference in, between China and the other countries is less that they have necessarily different values or different thought processes, as at least when it comes to the political elites that they have making decisions. It's more a case of they are able to get away with it just because of uh, the authoritarian regime. But the danger is in 5, 10, 20 years, unless we as sort of citizens hold these elected officials in sort of countries that we reside in accountable, then there's a very clear trajectory and path towards us slowly, blindly, perhaps walking into these authoritarian states or environments where we are basically, uh, we don't have any say. And because of the pace of uh, innovation being so fast, these governments can sometimes even utilize Chinese software to suppress and oppress their own populations. So that is why um, we all need to be vigilant and, and careful and always question whenever it comes to civil liberties and all, the, all these mm-hmm. other values and principles that we don't just hold dear, but that are just basically fundamental to why it's special to live in the places that we live in. Mm-hmm. 
Great, great stuff. Great to get your insight there. I'm going to leave, ask you one final question before we wrap up, um, Hussein. So for Onfido, going forward then with uh, to serve AI technologies, where else do you think you're going to be successful in supporting the need to clamp down on fraudulent activity or criminal activity and keeping certain privacy over clients' data? Do you see that there are other areas that you're going to be able to support and help in the future? Um, my hope is yes. So as an industry, we celebrate, or as a fraud and security industry, we celebrate ourselves all the time. We give each other awards. I, I was just a recipient of an award last night. And, and you know, Congratulations. Other, thank you. We all give each other a virtual high five. The, the fact remains that according to the United Nations, up to 5% of the world GDP is laundered money. And that's almost $2, two trillion. That's using human trafficking, drug trafficking, and terrorist financing. So um, there is a, and 99% of that is successful. So just, just to repeat that, the United Nations says that up, up to 5% of the world GDP, which is almost $2 trillion, is laundered money, and 99% of that is successful and goes undetected. So as much as essentially it was disappointing, I don't know if you watched last week's uh, BBC Panorama documentary around large banks are being essentially, there are question marks around their practices and, and mm-hmm. enabling significant well, money laundering to happen. Yeah. But I, as far- I, sorry. Yeah, I just, I do remember the, um, the Panorama documentary, but I just read something regarding certain banks and uh, laundering uh, cash for criminals. Yeah, I do. Oh, right. So, and what your question is, or what our hope is, yeah. so we're helping the neobanks, fintechs, and now increasingly the mainstream banks stop small scale, you know, fraudsters trying to launder 5,000 pounds, 20,000 pounds here and there and gaming, gambling companies and, and, and so on. The large ambition, the longer one is to feed through to the whole channels and, and make sure we're also stopping these much larger money laundering uh, mm-hmm. tickets as well. Fantastic. That's great stuff. So Hussein, thanks a lot for bringing yourself on the show along with your company on Fido. Um, it's been great having you and having some insight, certainly about artificial intelligence, the good and the bad. And I wish you all the best with your organization. Thank you very much for joining the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Hussein. And that is all for today's episode of Under Control. You can find links to all our social platforms and to our guests in the episode description. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. Join me again in two weeks' time for the next episode.